0: This is Theology Gaming Monologues, and this is Conker's Bad Fur Day.
1: The king, king of all the land. who the have thought that? But how did I come to this? I hear you say. And who are those strange fellows that surround my throne? I hear you also say. Well, it's a long story. Come closer, and I'll tell you. It all started yesterday. And what a day that was. It's what I call a bad fur
0: day note for obvious reasons this article slash monologue is for adults only you have been warned Conker's Bad Fur Day remains a pinnacle of video gaming its wild combination of genres, mini games, and setting under the common title of platformer make it a joy to play, while the depth of these individual segments are telling of Rare's complete dedication to their craft. Every segment brims with ideas probably forged from five to six years of analyzing different ways to enhance Super Mario 64, and their progression in that regard was amazing. We might think of Banjo-Kazooie, Tooie, and Donkey Kong 64 as mere test runs, while elements of Goldeneye, Blast Corps, and even Diddy Kong Racing even find their way into the mix. The ludicrous, hilarious story only adds to the experience, usurping the expectations of players for a game to be both interesting and funny. It's unfortunate that Rare hasn't made a game of this caliber in a long time, nor may such a game ever emerge from the studio again. But one can certainly play and replay Conqueror's Bad Fur Day and its remake on Xbox with a wink and a smile. That Rare shamelessly steals from itself and other entertainment mediums means that their ironic setting creates a story, narrative, and game that totally deviates from the norm. Now, to get into the story, wait! What the heck is this game doing on here? Isn't this a Christian website? Why in God's name would you put a vulgar and horrific game like that on a list of the best games? Well, if you give me a moment, I'm not going to. The game's full of bad language, naughty jokes, toilet humor, and it's really depressing at the end. How could a Christian ever say it's a great game? I have a very good explanation. I'd love to hear it because I do not see how you could call yourself a Christian and like this dirty, filthy game. What's wrong with you? There's a lot I could say. And furthermore, what's with all the innuendo? Isn't this a family website at the very least? Do you think God would approve of this sort of behavior? And especially you recommending something like this... Have not you read Ephesians 5, or are you one of those new Christians who think they can just make stuff up? For it says, yes, yes, I know, but obviously you don't, so here's a reminder. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving up thanks. For this you will know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, obviously you don't know your Bible. I'd beg to differ, but begging to differ against God is not really the way to win. And on it goes any righteous Christian would dismiss you out of hand, especially if they knew what the game contained we 're also talking of an era where Grand Theft Auto3 didn 't rock the game industry conquer's mature yet juvenile approach was novel. Video games were still a kid 's thing conquer was an anomaly, and anyone playing it certainly wasn 't a Christian. Good thing nobody knew about it when it came out Why 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 would a theologian ever like conquer 's bad Fur Day? That's a question I've been asking myself for a long time. Honestly, I adored it when I first bought it, and even bought it again at full price. There's not many people who would be that fanatical, or stupid maybe, to buy the exact same game again. But, then again, games like this don't come around very often. I don't think the answer is as simple as me being young, impressionable, and rebellious. I, and my parents, could easily tell you that I was none of these things. I did not do dumb things when I was a kid. I was, surprise, a nerd of a sort, but not an antisocial. one. I just happened to like video games a whole lot, and I liked talking about them. So, hearing much about BFD, and that's definitely an acronym for a bad phrase, I imagine, I decided I was old enough to handle it. Whatever mature means in a box, no game so far really took it so far over the edge that my parents had to shield my delicate eyes from the horrors of sin appearing on screen, reaching out to my retinas and burning crazed images of hellfire forever in my mind. One would assume a game with an orange squirrel in the box wasn't going to destroy my sanity. And it didn't. I'm glad to say. Rather, what I got was a highly entertaining video game, one that wasn't afraid to think outside the box, and, quite literally surprise the player at every turn. There's plenty of cartoons out there for quote-unquote adults, but there's a difference between vulgar humor for vulgarity's sake, which, as far as I can see, seems to be the case with the more recent Family Guy in Futurama, and vulgarity for the purpose of showing something more. Cocker does creative things with this cartoonish setting. The whole point, then, is irony. Nothing is as it seems in the realm of Windy, and neither is Cocker, surprisingly enough. Conker, partying with his soon-to-be-drafted buddies at the cock-and-plugger, I'm sure that's some kind of innuendo, has a bit too much to drink. Wandering out of the bar, he proceeds to bump into a random passerby and throws up on him. Obviously, he's totaled. Wasted. Conker walks off somewhere into the night. When he finally wakes up, he finds himself with a raging hangover and definitely in some place he's never been before. He meets Birdie the Scarecrow, who is just as drunk as Conker was. He also teaches the player about the magical context-sensitive button. Marked by a giant bee, they make a ding noise. Surprise for Birdie, this makes a beer appear, which Birdie proceeds to drink down with vigor. Press it again, and he'll drink a can of helium for absolutely no reason. It's sensitive to context. <laughs> so yeah, if you can't deal with this kind of randomness and non-sequiturs laced with crazed innuendo or humor, I suggest you stop listening to this. It says it on the box. This game is for people 17 and over, and that appears true enough for the vast majority of the population. When you press the B button next to the other pad, Conker will magically cure himself with some Alka-Seltzer and remark on the usefulness of the context-sensitive button, as well as telling you how to skip cutscenes. What's brilliant about this setup, other than making you laugh at its absurdist nature, is that the humor becomes a tutorial without the player noticing. Sure, I'm being taught what the buttons are, but that isn't a detriment. It's integrated right into the story so that the player does not even notice. It's better than having a text box appear every five seconds to describe a new function, that's for sure. Conker's thought bubbles become a way to teach the player new abilities while still integrating it into the story. Even the health power-ups are explained, and hilariously so. I should also note that the fourth wall breaking doesn't seem so out of context when Conker talks to you immediately upon the game beginning. So there's not really that divide or sense that there's a wall between the player and Conker. You can actually kind of get that he's telling you how to do stuff, and it's not really an issue, as it could be in a lot of games like this. The context-sensitive button... Is a game mechanic that, while seemingly unremarkable, allows Rare to play around quite a bit with genre and game style. In effect, Rare integrates content from many of their games into a single linear experience. Conquer does everything from feed cows prune juice to excrete ways violently, <laughs> to throwing toilet paper and singing piles of poo. I am the great mighty poo.
2: great mighty poo and I'm going to throw my shit at you. A huge supply of tish comes from my chocolate starfish. How about some scat, you little twat? Seem to know it, you your in. Sweet corn is the only thing that makes it through my rear. How do you think I keep this lovely grin? Have some more caviar. <laughs> Little tag nut. When I knock you out with all my bab, I'm going to take your head and ram it off my butt. Your butt. My butt. Your butt. That's right, my butt. My My butt. My butt.
0: That's what I call a bowel movement. Everybody likes that song. But it's not all toilet humor. We've got a zombie vampire hunting segment, a war zone, prehistoric times, and just about any usual setting in a game, each with its own context-sensitive buttons. It turns into a great first-person shooter in these lighter segments, showing the strains of GoldenEye and Perfect Dark. The Xbox version improves these further with dual analog controls, basically integrating Rare's development skills right into the game. A racing segment gives a hint of Diddy Kong Racing's excellent controls, while basic platforming abounds in Banjo-Kazooie-esque segments scattered throughout. It's almost as if they transplanted these segments directly from the games in question. Hey, if you're going to steal ideas, why not steal them from yourselves? It has truly varied game mechanics from start to finish, all crammed into a short length. Even this alone would be cause for applause, but the rare of old never settled for less. The story and characters, really, just come out of total left field. It's hilarious at most points It goes through what appears as the story beats of multiple action movies from the 1990s, with references strewn endlessly throughout. As of now, much of this remains completely dated. The Matrix segment particularly suffers from this, even as it's better than any official Matrix game. I'm looking at you, enter the Matrix. But anyone with a nostalgic bone in their body for pop culture, American specifically, would do well to seek this game out. There's plenty of lists online detailing these, but it's better if I leave them to the player to discover. Hopefully you're old enough to even get any of the references to that. Even if it's a great game experience, it's odd that a company so reverent of Japanese game design would suddenly impugn that same quality of game design by almost ripping themselves off outright, self really pointing out the game-like nature of these segments in many instances. It's not very family-friendly, if anything, it's violent, dirty, and cynical. If, as a Rare employee suggested, Rare was always looking east at Japanese and Nintendo's games in particular with their open-hearted childlike vibrancy and playfulness, where did that go? Why would Rare make a game like this? Supposedly, they found that their output would conquer, originally yet another platformer like Banjo-Kazooie, was just too similar to everything else they developed in the period between 1994 and 2000. As such, it was imperative that they mix the formula up in a way that shocked and amazed people. And potty-mouthed forest rodents work as well as about anything else. The original Conker's Bad Fur Day, because of how late it was released, sold only 55,000 copies or so. Dwarfed by the remake, which sold over 14 times as much. Cult Game describes it well. There could be other reasons, though. Rare was a second-party developer to Nintendo. In a way, they were forced to make the kind of innocent, goody-two-shoe games like Banjo and Donkey Kong by virtue of their stockholder. It fit the Nintendo brand. So why in God's name would Nintendo allow the release of Bad Fur Day remains completely beyond my comprehension. It's almost as if they expected it wouldn't sell, given that it came out only eight months before the GameCube dropped onto the market. Rare was probably mad, no doubt Their creativity at their peak, their masterpiece Was relocated to an incredibly short shelf life And ultimately led to their sale to Microsoft Rare's co-founders, Chris and Tim Stamper Left the company two years after that acquisition Imagine, Star Fox Adventures came out for the GameCube in 2002 And by this time, Rare hadn't made a single game Star Fox Adventures had to fit that family image, and was so even before Dinosaur Planet was transplanted into Nintendo's famous franchise. At least for Conker, it's obvious something happened within Rare, given that they didn't make anything for GameCube at all. As the story goes, by Microsoft's reckoning, they were 50% owned by Nintendo, and Nintendo had an option to acquire the other half of the company by a certain date. If they didn't exercise that option, then Rare would have the option to find a buyer for Nintendo's half. Nintendo had already extended the option by one year, but it looked like they weren't going to acquire the other half of Rare, so the Rare guys started looking around to see if anyone else might be interested. We were a logical choice from the call. Of course, here of To 4 is my own speculation, but I can't imagine the idea of a cynical take on Nintendo's darling formula was any coincidence. Perhaps they didn't really care about how well their games sold or who played them, but what game developer asserts that kind of position? even if you've got the dream job of a lifetime, having your development idol buy your company would probably be the deal of a lifetime. But Nintendo did not. The creative partnership was broken then, Rare becoming a victim of their own success and going to where they are today, making motion control games for Xbox Connect and Xbox Live avatars. A far cry from their former glory, to be sure. The atmosphere of the buyout. Definitely known by employees at the time Augments the cynical nature of the game It is in some way A commentary on the obsequious nature Of the 3D platformer at the time Which had such a singular focus That at some points It could get somewhat tedious (laughs) And that's a little bit Of an understatement Rare itself was as much a culprit of the collect-a-thon as any other developer. Donkey Kong 64 was the absolute height of that trend, requiring the player to collect nearly six or seven different kinds of objects for various purposes. Having five characters might sound like an ad's variety, but the five apes in that game differ little apart from aesthetics. It appears Conker was almost a direct rebuttal to that kind of game design as it does exactly the opposite. It's not open-ended, and it has loads of cutscenes, a story, and continually comments on the player and increasingly absurd events that happen therein. But of course, we're visiting these settings with cartoon characters that are quite self-centered, and more act like real people, even if they're also funny. That's the weirdly endearing part of the whole experience. Conquer acts against type more like a normal per person thrown into extraordinary circumstances than the traditional cartoon character he has friends he drank a little too much and now he's in a big mess for a whole day but what strikes me about him other than how terrifically he and everyone else speaks his lines and does the dialogue is the fact that he's completely selfish now i'm sure anyone who's had a hangover really just wants to get home but conquer he'll do anything for that and anything for money Money, in fact, replaces the token objects of the platformer, acting similarly to Mario 64's stars or Banjo-Kazooie's Jiggies. They're not really a plot device so much as an expression of the character himself, a greedy bastard, as the money might say, who really doesn't care so much for anything as his own well-being. Yes, Conker is likable and funny, and you really don't want him to die, but you just can't help looking at him with a little bit of disdain, even among the humor. You get to see his thoughts as well as his words, and they're usually just as cynical and downright awful as you'd expect. The things that you think in your mind also might be similar. Rescuing and helping people comes at a cost, either with money or through blackmail. I won't spoil that particular segment. Even though he's searching for his girlfriend, Barry, for much of the game, it's not like he really cares all that much. He's just trying to survive in a world gone wrong, right? Doesn't that justify him? Interestingly enough, Rare's answer is no, it does not. One could take an excessively nihilistic view of the ending in that nothing he does actually matters, but I prefer to give the game a little more theological shine, given my proclivities. Spoilers ahead, for those wondering. Conquer plays with conventions to break them, because it's not what you're expecting. What you are expecting is, in fact, a happy ending. Imagine, though, that the protagonist is a lovable but self-serving man who does nothing but for his own gain. In the end, the game locks up as he is about to die in his final confrontation with Heinrich, the alien from Alien, but not really. Conker then makes a deal with the developer of the game. He'll make sure not to tell anyone about this game-breaking bug. In return, you have to give me stuff. So he gets a Japanese katana, teleports himself back to the throne room of the evil panther-type king... And kills the xenomorph in blisteringly cool style. Ain't that grand? Several characters, happy that the king is dead, force Conquer to become the new king to rule over them. Sure enough, Conquer, ever the self interested one, has absolutely no intentions to rule over an entire kingdom and vehemently rejects the offer. After doing so, he realizes he forgot to bring Barry, his girlfriend, back to life. During the final battle, she is sucked out of a spacecraft and subsequently dies. Conker realizes this too late. The developer has fled the scene, leading to Conker's forced regnancy. Now, what is interesting here is that Barry stays dead. The mouse who explodes because he eats too much cheese and becomes filled with flatulent gas? He's stitched back together for the finale. Anybody Conker didn't like all shoved into a room with him, attached him only now that he's become the king of the land. Now he has all the money in the world. Everything he wanted through the game and acted selfishly to get and now he can't get the one thing in the world he wants, Barry. So Conker's speech at the end rings quite true. So, there I am. King. King
1: of all the land. Who'd have thought that? (laughs) Not me. I guess you know who these guys are now. Because I certainly do. I don't want none of them. And yep, I may be king. I have all the money in the world. And all the land. And all that stuff. But you know, I don't really think I want it. I just want to go home. With Barry. And, I don't know, have a bottle of beer. Hmm. Through what they say, the grass is always greener, and you don't really know what it is you have until it's gone. Gone.
0: Gone. Talk about gaining the whole world and losing your soul, huh? Matthew 16 allows us to put this into greater context. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What else can we say? One has to act unselfishly, a servant, to really get what life's about in the end. Where does selfishness lead at its zenith? To something you don't want, obviously. It looks attractive at first, but in the end, you already had what you wanted in the first place. In the world of sin, it's just a day in a life as Chris Sevor, project lead and voice of every male character in the game, says. It's a good name, and because of the premise of the game, a sort of day in the life. The initial idea was a simple one. Conker is an innocent who wanders into difficult situations and inadvertently causes even more mayhem before wandering off, not looking back. Conker genuinely wants to help people, but he doesn't quite manage it. I thought this would be funny. It sort of evolved from there, really. As Tolkien once said, the tale grew in the tilling. In other words, I made the f- up as I went along. <laughs> I don't see Conker as innocent or even willingly helping people, but trust the creator to tell you otherwise. Yes, I'm reading more into the story than what's really there, but I think that anyone can take something away from it, even when it's in doubt. When in doubt, stay in bed. That a story can be told subtly and engagingly, even with cartoon characters, amazes me. Most animated films couldn't even begin to get into that depth, or at least be derived from it. Every action you do in the game has relevance, and shows the dark underbelly of the traditional platformer overworld. There's violence, sex, drugs, and supernatural forces even in this environment. It's a double take on the idea of a pure world without getting into the muck and mire. But that plays into the whole story, that actions do have consequences, even ones we can't foresee with our limited perspective. That's why Conker becomes more endearing and realistic, even as it tries to play with that supposed innocence of the animated world. It's more real than this one, in some ways. At least it doesn't disguise its sin. Imagine that, a cartoon character with more realism than most game protagonists nowadays. How bizarre. Now, to allay the concerns of the more squeamish among you regarding the adult content, I'd like to point out a few key facts that might help you along your path to enjoying this game experience. Let's take a look at Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul, in his fervor to describe the importance of Jesus Christ in the life of the Christian, says as such, "...but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, bolded, so that I may gain Christ. That word, rubbish, is the important part. Paul, though educated, spoke to his audience. His audience, then, was a bunch of uneducated Gentiles who spoke a commoner's Greek, or a koine Greek, as it's more well-known. The New American Standard Bible, my preferred favorite version, translates it as rubbish. Of course, for us English speakers, rubbish is something akin to trash, so it sort of has a good connotation, or at least not really an offensive connotation. Paul's wording in the Greek, however, is much stronger than that. The New International Version says garbage, which is kind of similar. A little more vulgar, I guess. The English Standard Version is the same as the New American Standard Bible, but the message actually uses dog done. Like, specifically dog done. (laughs) What? I don't really like the message paraphrase, usually. It's a mess for trying to get the original meaning in a lot of places, and they don't really get the original meaning, they just kind of make stuff up (laughs) and it's not very respectful of the source material you know if you call god's word but in this particular case it actually gets it right poop is a lot closer to the original greek word used here than anything else that follows in line with another inaccurate translation good for its time but outdated called the king james version like you don't know what that is which uses the word dung these are accurate though However, they're still missing the forcefulness of Paul's language. Paula isn't saying it likely. It's like that person saying, you're full of poop. In American culture, it doesn't quite have that quality that makes people take a step back and say, wow, I'm offended. But Paul doesn't mince words, and he doesn't hold his language back. The Greek word skubala is what's placed there. It's the equivalent of a modern-day curse word, and I'm going to guess you figured it out already. So let's say it all together. So let's redo the verse with our newly adopted knowledge and see what happens. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but shit so that I may gain Christ. Now that's some strong language, I'd say. When you're dealing with something like religion, who has time for pleasantries in the life? This is serious business, Paul says, and if I have to use strong language, so what? It creates such a divide between the Christian life and that of the world that, literally, the world looks like s*** in comparison. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? This shows up later when, in basically every Bible translation in English, the word member is actually something more equivalent to any slang word for penis, you can imagine. In Greek, anyway. We've gotten a sanitized Bible over the years and I've always wondered why. Whether it's a preconception of what holiness is, a guy in a white robe, a spotless church, a nice little steeple, we've got notions and preconceptions of what holy things are that tend not to fit real life. We have to kind of displace it from the day to day so that we feel like there's something more holy about this experience than this experience. Like, think of it in the sense of I'm in a church and therefore this is kind of like set apart right the word holy is kind of is to means to set apart so it has to be something that we set apart not spiritually we usually interpret it in the physical sense so if you want to think of it like I need the aesthetics of this spiritual experience or this church to be different than my day to day existence sometimes people think they need clear markers, right? And what happens is when you have these clear markers, you kind of put this cleavage between what's holy and what's not. And then what happens in your thinking is that you end up making these barriers between what can be considered Christian and what cannot. And this is how you end up with contemporary Christian music or isolated Christian media that is only entertainment for Christians and so we can isolate ourselves and not really integrate with people but Jesus obviously didn't do any of that and that's where you end up with this strange divide even our common depictions of angels, demons, uh, heaven up in the sky this stuff simply isn't in the text anywhere. Our understanding of the spiritual realm is tenuous at best we know from scripture how it functions in relation to us but little else. And that's how God likes it. Because he knows we couldn't deal with it, even if given the opportunity. We like to put things in boxes. Christianity is a lifestyle, guys and gals, not some imagery you promote. Your style of dress does not make you any more Christian than the words coming out of your mouth. Your physical appearance doesn't make you any more holy than otherwise. Christianity may have an afterlife, But it's just as much about being a true human being the way God designed us in the here and now. The people that wrote it under inspiration may have wrote what God wanted, but they're still human beings created in God's image, and so they appeal to that same audience of human beings. The Ephesians verse, then, emphasizes encouragement of our fellow Christians to live in the world, but to not be of the world. Our actions should reflect Christ, but a curse word isn't the important part. It is all part of one's audience in the real message underneath it. The intentions rather than the appearance. Paul, apparently, felt fine using such words among Christians as well. What does that say for us? We need to be willing to accept that even the Bible speaks to its audience, as does this game. I can't imagine most people weren't totally blindsided by this unique game from its beginning to end. Enough of belaboring the point, then. Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, for me, represents a meaningful, in-depth gaming experience, even if its manners border on the juvenile, and its themes aren't as straightforward and clean as one might like. But that's why it's a unique game, and that is why it is on the list. Thank you for listening to this Theology Gaming monologue. I hope I you liked what you heard. If you'd like to learn more, please go to TheologyGaming.com. Please subscribe to our iTunes or podcast feed or RSS or whatever. And if you want to ask me questions, I can be reached at beautifulzfo, as in beautiful Joe, at gmail.com. If you want to talk to the whole cadre of Theology Gaming contributors and people who like to read it, then please send for an invite to the Theology Gaming University Facebook group, where we openly talk about such subjects in greater detail, or perhaps we just talk about video games or whatever. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.